Welcome to a Heritage Christian Centre podcast. For more information, visit www.heritagecc.com.au. We hope this message blesses your life. Um, that song we sang before, last one, you know, that comes directly out of the book of Revelation. And it is the core heart of the book of Revelation. All the saints and angels bow before your throne. There's this sense of worship. Incense go up. Well, incense are the prayers of the saints. So, so that song, and there are others, which are just an amazing picture of the main focus of the book of Revelation. So I'm doing a series. This is part three. If you haven't seen part one and two, they are online at Heritage Christian Centre Facebook page, I believe. And uh, you should watch those to go with this to catch the heart. I am not delving into the explanation of every situation. The, the, the leopard with the ribs in its mouth, the bear, the, all those things. I'm not delving into that. I'm, I'm trying to catch the heart of the book so that when we read it, we read it with the perspective and the main focus as the main focus. So let, let's begin with a quick overview, very quick. Um, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ for a reason. It's not the revelation of end time events. It's not the revelation of the judgment of God. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the first response is John falls down to worship. Then John calls the church to get their heart right in the letters to the churches. Then we have a whole journey where there's so much worship in it. And we'll touch more of that today. Um, and, and it finishes with a call for whosoever will may come. And it's about come to worship. So we want to get there. Why worship him was one of the questions we asked. We found out we should worship him because of who he is. And we worship him because of what he has done. Now, the Bible tells us constantly to avoid useless controversies. And there's so much useless controversy about end time events, especially when they get into the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel. Titus says this, Paul talking to Titus 3.9, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions and striving about the law, meaning the scriptures. They are unprofitable and useless. So if you want to have a pre-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture, whether you're amillennial, premillennial, bimillennial, whatever, uh, let's not argue over stuff that's not the main focus of the book. Now, I'm not saying the other views are right or wrong, but they can't all be right. They don't agree. They can't all be right. It's possible they could all be wrong, though. And I could be wrong about what I'm saying. So this is why Paul tells us that the Berean Christians are more noble than Thessalonian ones because they searched the Scriptures having received the Word with a ready attitude, not a, not a critical attitude, and they searched the Scriptures to confirm what they had heard, not to prove it wrong. So if you go away, I'm going to prove him wrong, you've got the wrong attitude. That's not what Paul's talking about. So uh, it's not about the sequence of end time events. You can't make apocalyptic, poetic literature literal and put it 
together. It's written in a chiastic structure, which means it's forced into a pattern like a poem. Not everything is in order. We saw there were seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And then some of us knew, not many, a couple of us knew that there were seven thunders. That God doesn't, that John doesn't alliterate on at all. So it's pretty hard to be concrete in our speculations when one quarter of the information's not there. That's pretty hard. So when people start being dogmatic about this or that, and you know, there's seven times and the 58, 2,380 odd days or whatever, it's hard because we're left with only 75% of the information if we're going to make it as literal as some people do. What we do see and is agreed upon is that it's a, it's a context of two kingdoms. And Revelation is full of this principle of two kingdoms. Listen, Revelation 11, we touched this a bit last week. Verse 15, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So if he's reigning, it's his kingdom. All the kingdoms become his kingdom. And then it says the 24 elders who sat before God, they fell down, they threw their thrones and they worshipped. And Revelation 9 tells me the rest of mankind did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship. Talk about worshipping lies and idols and the Antichrist and the beast. And so it's about the worship of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Jesus Christ, or about worshipping other things or other people. We have this contrast of decisions right through the book. And the ultimate question is, who will you worship? So moving on, Revelation 12, 13. Now we see the dragon turns up and the dragon, the serpent, most people would agree that's a symbolic process of the devil. And what follows then is an attempt at developing a world where God is not God, but the devil is. So, so what we find is in chapters 12 and 13, there's this change of focus from worshipping God to if you're not worshipping God, you're worshipping something else. Revelation 13, 4, people worship the dragon. In, t- in verse 8, all the inhabitants of the earth worship, will worship the beast. Verse 15, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. So it's about worship. Even when it's negative, it's about worship. It goes on in verse 16 and says, It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or in their foreheads so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So here is where a lot of confusion jumps in and people try and say something is the mark of the beast. They try and give it a concrete evidence or concrete structure. Now, let's just read the book in the context of Scripture and understand and and discern according to what the Bible teaches. And so the Bible tells us how we establish things, how we establish truths. And it tells us in numerous places. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says this, A single witness is not enough or shall not suffice. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. 
In Matthew 18, 16, Jesus is recorded as speaking and saying, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. John writes, in the law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. Uh, Hebrews, an unknown author, uh, the book of the Bible, Hebrews, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Matthew records in Matthew 18, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So we have Moses, Matthew, Paul, Jesus, unknown author, and even John, the writer of Revelation, says one witness is not enough to factualise anything. So the only place we find the mark of the beast mentioned is Revelation. One witness, John. So John himself says that is not enough to make it factual. And so we step back and go, when did John write it? In what context did he write it? And accordingly, we've got to go, the mark of the beast is something we shouldn't speculate about as, as a concrete thing uh, because so many have got it wrong. How many remember the bank card? Who remembers the bank card? It had a triple B, six Six, six. It's the mark of the beast. Guess what? Doesn't take me a lot of intelligence to figure this out. I think you can, you can catch up with me on this one. They were wrong. Just a thought. They were, people, it's the mark. No! Don't speculate. Don't make up stories and try and force the Bible to fit into your story. The best understanding is I believe in is that when the book was written, they literally had a situation where they had to get a mark on their hand or forehead so they could buy and sell in the markets at Ephesus in the Roman Empire. That mark was made up of ash from an offering where you went and worshipped the Emperor Domitian, who called himself King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he had that inheritance from his fathers. And actually it comes through Augustus, uh, who, who when the star of Bethlehem turned up, when Saturn and I think Jupiter aligned, they used that to say that that just proved that he was God. Um, <laughs> we call it the star of Bethlehem that you know, signaled Jesus. The Romans called it the Roman star that confirmed the, the godhood of the Roman emperors. But people had to bring an offering of worship to Domitian. They would take ash from the offering, put it on your right hand and your forehead, and then you could go to the markets and buy and sell. So when John wrote this, this was actually a literal happening. How does that relate to us today? Simple. Who do you worship is the mark who do you worship is the mark, not what do you have in your body, what marks you put on. Oh, get a tattoo, you're going to hell. No, that's skin. It's flesh and blood. It, it's not demonic. Please don't get one though. If you do, that's fine, but please. I mean, why? 
Why pay all that money for an artwork that won't last and won't look quite the same when you're 75? Can you... Sorry. You can get it. But please don't. Anyway. Um, It was a mark so you could worship and then buy and sell. It's about worshipping. It's worshipping a system that isn't the kingdom of God. Now, I might throw something in here to upset some people. It might be the worship of democracy. Because democracy is certainly not kingdom. You don't get a vote on what God says is right and wrong. Well, then many of us vote for this. No, sorry, you don't get democracy in the kingdom of God. You have a king. So if you're worshipping democracy, now I'm not against it. It's probably the best system we have in a sinful world where humans can get along reasonably comfortably and peaceably. But please don't worship democracy. Don't, wor- don't please, please. It, it, it's not biblical. It's where man says we can make our own choices. Now, I like it. I'm glad I live in a democratic world. But ultimately, if more and more people are turning away from God, democracy will work against us. And I don't live in a democracy. I live in a kingdom. Because I serve a king. And because I serve the king, he says, obey the authorities. Now, submit is the key. Obedience to the point where I don't have to disobey God. But if I'm asked to disobey God, then like Peter and John, well, you choose. Should I obey you or God? The answer is I'm going to obey God. And democracy is wonderful, but it's not something to be worshipped. Now, I'll probably upset a whole bunch of people, but I really don't care. Um, I want us in the kingdom with the right heart. If you worship the wrong system and the wrong kingdoms, you're in trouble. And then we move on to chapter 14 after 13. And surprise, surprise, guess what we find? Worshippers. People worshipping him and the prayers of the saints and the worship of the 144,000. And he's on the throne. And then we have those who... Won't. Listen to this, Revelation 14. The sound I heard was like a harpist playing their harps and they sang a new song before the Lord, the throne and he said with a loud girl voice, fear God and give him glory. Here's the hour of judgment. Now be careful with that word has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas and the springs. And verse nine, if anyone worships the beast. So here we have the contrast of worship. Who are you worshiping? If you don't think worship is in the book of Revelation, read it. Read it and say, where is worship or the thought of worship or the expression of worship in this book? And you will find Revelation is full of worship. Same we saw last week, a contrast of worship. Who are we worshiping? What kingdom are we living in? And then up to chapter 18 from here, we see what seems initially like God judging the world of those who worship the dragon, the beast, and that whole set up. up. And could I suggest that if you understand the heart of God and know that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, a God who relents from doing harm, and look at Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, I would suggest that maybe John is writing what he's seeing and making a comment on it And calling it judgment. Maybe it's more about God removing 
his protection from those who willingly and constantly refuse his covering. And it looks like judgment. John is seeing their consequences when people push God out of their world and out of their life. And I actually think it's probably more like God's mercy and grace and kindness that's been there for all humanity, not in full measure because we've rejected him. We're in a world of sin that God has come to a time where he says that this, this season, I'm going to withdraw my protection and give you the consequences of your actions. Allow you to receive what you have purchased with your life. And if you, if you don't agree, well, let me read a couple of thoughts that might give you a clue. Psalm 119, verse 67, David says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Listen, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And in Revelation 18, it says this, After this I saw, an angel speaks, and he had fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling of demons and a haunt of every impure spirit. And a horn of every unclean bird, a horn of every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations are drunk of the maddening wine of her adulteries. They've been caught up into this life and this world to the point where all they're focused on is their own pleasure. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. It seemed good for a season when we worshipped the enemy, when we got God out. And then it goes on. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. It's not that God judged them. It's that the plagues overtook them. The fruit of their labours came to bear. The tree was going great for a season, looked really good. But when the fruit came, it was bitter and sour and it destroyed and it killed. Death, mourning and famine, it says. People get so caught up in their lustful pleasures, but the end result is the plagues will come upon them. See, you can get away with sin for a season. Hebrews tells me in 11.25, there are pleasures in sin for a season. Moses knew that and he rejected the pleasures of Egypt and rather to suffer with the people of God because he knew the pleasures of sin last a season. Soon you will have to pay the piper. Soon the consequences will come to bear. And when God steps away, it looks like judgment. And it is, but it's you receiving the judgment of your own conduct upon your life. Happened in Israel constantly, numerous occasions. They had God encounters. But generationally over time, they forgot that all the good they had was from God and they still rejected Him. Psalm 109 says it. In verse 7, our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled. Verse 10, he saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. Verse 13, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert and he gave them their request. Sent leanness to their soul. If you don't want me, I will eventually step out. 
If you refuse me and keep consistently rejecting me and turn your back on me and say you don't want me, I will step out and you will have a life without God in it. Just imagine a world without goodness, a world without real love, a world without kindness and compassion and generosity. God says, look, if you really want it, if you really, really want it, sorry, there's a song about that, isn't there? If you really, really want it, you can have a life without God and it will have pleasures for a season, but there is a consequence. And Revelation 13 to 18 says, If you want the consequences, I'm sorry. I have tried for 6,000 odd years to redeem you, to rescue you, to protect you. And now I have no option but to allow you to receive the consequences of your choices. And then we move from that point to a contrast of a world where he is King of kings and Lord of lords, a new heavens, a new earth, a perfect environment. Actually, before the new heavens, new earth, I believe a reign of Christ on the earth where everything is perfect, where there is peace, where there's wholeness and healing. The Bible implies that people, if they die at 100, they will die like babies. There will be this longevity and health and wholeness of life and peace on the earth where Christ rules with strong power. But at the end of that, the Bible implies very clearly that even having had a perfect environment, because our psychologists all want to tell us the environment makes bad people. I'm sorry, every parent knows you don't have to teach your children to be bad. You try to teach them to be good. It's not the environment. It's the sin nature in us. But God gives a perfect environment. And at the end of that, people still rebel and reject him. I believe it so no one can accuse God ever of saying you weren't just and you weren't loving. It seems like God gives humanity another chance. God reaches out and says, another chance. I'll show you what it looks like in the kingdom where where Jesus is Lord and Christ, where he rules. And you'll see how beautiful it is, how peaceful it is, how much health there is, how much joy there is, how much happiness, how much wholeness. And at the end, Man will still want his own way. And the Bible then leads us to what appears to be final judgment. And then Revelation finishes with this call. Love the musicians and singers to come. It closes with this call. Whosoever will may come. Revelation paints a picture of two kingdoms and who we choose to worship and the consequences of that decision. It's about mostly and foremostly, the book is about worship. And it's an invitation to Christians in chapters two and three to come back to our worship, get our hearts on fire with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, turn our back on compromise, seek Him with all, get a fresh love, get a first love established, return, get out of lukewarmness, persist through the trials and tribulations, keep loving one another, be people with a heart of worship that Paul talks about in Revelation 12, our reasonable act of worship. And the contrast is, this is what happens when you kick God out. This is what happens when you choose to worship other things than Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour.
Next week, I'm going to wrap it up very briefly because I've already got much more than four or five messages on end times out of other books, not apocalyptic texts. See, if we get out of the apocalyptic text and start looking where else it is, we start to catch the picture which, which agrees with the heart of Revelation about end times. It's about getting back to a place where we, our, our worship is to Him. And so I'm going to wrap up with just essentially just a couple of key points and a, a brief overview of the other books that talk about it. And we'll see very just briefly because I'll, I'll jump next year into another part two series of books in times outside of Revelation. But right now, I want us to catch the heart of the book as it is. See, you can delve into the minor topics of the book. And listen, they are side issues. The trumpets, the bowls, the seals, the thunders. They're minor issues of the book of Revelation. They're there, but they're minor issues. They're subjective, they're minor issues. They're not concrete, they're minor issues. But it's a call to worship. It's a call to make sure our hearts are right with God. It's a call to the Christian to make sure our heart is right. It's a call to those who don't know Jesus to say, here is the choice you have. The Bible says in the Old Testament, God cries out and says, why would you die in your sin? Turn and live. Turn and live. So it starts with the church to to be all that God's called it to be. And for us as believers, to be all that God has called us to be. Worshippers in spirit and in truth. As an example that those who don't know Jesus yet could hear the call, whosoever will may come. And it's not that God makes heaven and hell as it were. It's that man chooses whether he will join God and worship the King or whether he'll have a kingdom where there is no goodness of God, where there is no love of God. And that kingdom is not where you wanna be. And I don't wanna put fear tactics in, but God just says, here it's your choice. Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve or whom you will worship with your life. So I wanna ask us all today, Christian, and non-Christian, is He the one we worship? Does our life demonstrate that we are worshippers in spirit and in truth? If you're a Christian, how is your first love? Is there a lukewarmness? Is there a compromise? And what are you doing about it? It's not a criticism. It's a cry from the heart of God. Come and like Revelation 3.20 to the Christian, hey, I'm standing at the door. Will you let me back in? I've got a wonderful future. I've got power. I've got joy. I've got peace in the storm. I'm going to be with you in the middle of every trial of life. Will you let me in? And then to the sinner, you can join this new kingdom. You can join this wonderful kingdom that will eventually be a new heaven and a new earth. No sickness, no sorrow, no tears, no dying, no death. 
peace and joy and hope and love surround everybody. And the atmosphere of that fills the world of this new heaven and new earth or the other. But it's your choice. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to ask you, do you want to be right with God? Christian, do you want to get back your first love? And look, it starts with a choice. But again, you've got to then act that choice. You know, the Bible says, you want first love? Do first works. Get back to serving with an open heart. Get back to a joy of just giving your life to the things of God. But if you don't know Jesus, the call is to you too. Come. He says, if you call upon the Lord, you'll be saved. Turn from the way without God and turn to a way with Him as the Lord of your life. It's your call and it's your choice. But Revelation tells me, you have a consequence for whichever choice you choose. Do you want the consequences of your choice? And if you don't, then choose differently. And if you do, then choose it with all your heart. Can we close our eyes and bow our heads? Before we pray, are there people here today? Maybe you, you turned away from God some time ago, or maybe you haven't committed ever your life to Jesus. And today you want to say, I want to choose Jesus. I want to recommit or commit my life to Jesus afresh. If that's you, would you just quickly raise your hand wherever you are? Can we just raise it where you are across this building? I'm sure there's people here. Maybe you're as a Christian now that you know that there's, it's not, your heart's not on fire like it ought to be. I'm not going to say it's going to get on fire instantly. What I'm going to say is God will empower you to make the right choices once you choose the right way. And in, in that journey, you'll find that strength, that joy, that hope, that peace. Father, right now across this place, we want to be people who are worshippers, people who have a right heart after the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, you alone are worthy. You're worthy of it all. Would you stand with me as we sing this song?